Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hi, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure tonight to introduce Carol Edgarian, who grew up in Connecticut. She received a BA in English from Stanford and then moved to San Francisco, where um, she worked for a high-tech public relations firm, um, writing technical manuals and news releases for companies, including Microsoft, um, and speeches for venture capitalists. Along with her husband, editor and writer Tom Jenks, Carol is the founder of the nonprofit magazine Narrative, which publishes more than 300 artists each year, and of Narrative in the Schools, a program to encourage reading and writing in the schools. Um, In 1994, Carol published her first novel, Rise the Euphrates. The book's protagonist and narrator, Seda, is at the center of a harrowing generational struggle between her mother and grandmother. The grandmother, Kassard, is the sole survivor from her family um, of the Armenian genocide of 1915. She witnesses all of them being slaughtered by the Turks and carries this memory with her to the United States, and where she tries to pass on all of this, um, the history, the tradition, to her own daughter, Araxi. But Araxi perhaps inevitably flees from this burden of guilt and fierce anger. And when she marries an American, a non-Armenian, Kassard is enraged by what she sees as yet another betrayal. And so a young Seda must navigate between cultures and histories. The daughter assumes what is unfinished in her mother's life, Seda learns. The unanswered questions become her work. The Washington Post wrote, this is a book whose generosity of spirit, intelligence, humanity, and finally ambition are what literature ought to be and rarely is today. Daring, heartbreaking, and affirmative, giving order and sense to our random lives. Carol's next novel, Three Stages of Amusement, was published in 2011. The story begins on New Year's Eve of 2008. Barack Obama has just been elected president. The American economy is in free fall, and our protagonist, Lena Roosh, is throwing a dinner party to which her husband, Dr. Charlie Pepper, is late because, as usual, he's been trying to save his medical high-tech startup from financial disaster. Three, t- sta- Three Stages of Amusement is a book of our times. It evokes vividly the flip-flopping boom-and-bust cycles in Silicon Valley. It takes us into the mansions of the super-rich venture capitalists and into the super-cool workplaces of the startup heroes. But what I loved about the book was its depiction of what the scientist and Zen practitioner John Kabat-Zinn calls life itself. He describes it as the full catastrophe. That phrase is actually from a novel called Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kazantakis. And in that book, a companion of the bombastic Zorba the Greek asks, Zorba, have you ever been married? And Zorba replies, am I not a man? Of course I've been married. Wife, house, kids, everything. The full catastrophe. Carol's depiction of the delights and dangers of the householder's life is nuanced, accurate, funny, and tragic. Early in the book, the narrator tells us, even after the wedding, Charlie and Lena still believed that marriage was a flexible, romantic sort of agreement, which they would shape and polish over time. It was not. Marriage was a stone on which far tougher than the likes of Charlie and Lena had been shaped and polished unto vapor and salt. 
Anybody who's encountered that particular stone will recognize the truth of three stages of amazement. But the book also brings alive the glories of the full catastrophe, the moments of love and friendship and laughter that make it all worth doing. NPR described uh, this novel as perhaps the most serious and the most entertaining domestic novel of the year. And it is surely that and much more. Please welcome Carol Adair. Thank you. I love that, the full catastrophe. So thank you, Vikram. It's great to be here. I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm happy to answer any questions, and we can, we can go where the conversation leads us. As, as Vikram said, um, in Three Stages of Amazement, the book takes place in the year 2009, and Lena Rush and Charlie Pepper, uh, the main characters, are in their 40s, and they've hit that moment of, of midlife crisis where the, the myth of limitlessness uh, has, really, has really been busted at the same moment that, of course, America's myth of limitlessness uh, has also ended. And everybody is in a moment, all the characters in the book are in a moment of, of, of both crisis and questioning of what's next and what's the next dance. For tonight's reading, I'm going to begin at the beginning of their relationship um, when everything seemed possible. Charlie Pepper wasn't Lena's first love, but he counted on being her last. He counted on it from the beginning when they met in the 90s in a different world. The party was in Soho. Josh Klein, Charlie's college roommate, having been named a partner at Goldman Sachs, was throwing himself a bash. Lena, a producer for an ABC news show, had come to research a piece on post-yuppies, whose avarice she intended to skewer in four parts. Charlie noticed her by the windows. She was wearing a black dress that announced her intention to go to the next level, while her face said, but here I am, why is that? It was the disquiet in Lena's face that captured Charlie. Dark hair, pale skin, Audrey Hepburn neck. As she scanned the room, her eyebrows peaked as if asking a fundamental question. Charlie wondered what it was. He hoped he had the answer. There was a bit of the fairy about her, a bit of the witch. Obviously, it's an excellent time, Bill Hungerford told Charlie, by way of explaining his recent move into private equity. Bill played squash with Kleine, and he seemed to be under the mistaken impression that Charlie was also a mover in financial circles. My pop's putting up the initial nut if you're wondering about that. Charlie wasn't even remotely listening. What color, he mused. Green? He was talking about Lena's eyes. Green? Oh, sure, man. Green as Ben Franklin. Bill Hungerford laughed, but by then Charlie was halfway to the windows. Oh, no, Lena thought as the buffalo hunter approached. They weren't alike as, at all. She was impatient to his patience, intuitive to his one foot in front of the other empire-building logic. She was mercurial, proud, thin-boned, quick to slight, long to suffer, ardent. 
In other words, Lena Rush wouldn't likely fall for Charlie Pepper unless she were recovering from his opposite. As she came closer, Lena's gaze dropped to the as he came closer, Lena's gaze dropped to the whirls in the pickled oak floor. She'd been thinking lately that if she didn't do something amazing and soon, she'd become the thing most dreaded, ordinary. Hungry, Charlie asked, wanting everything, advertising nothing. He offered her a strawberry dipped in chocolate perched on a dainty white napkin. That's your name, Hungry? She took a large bite, showing him two versions of a smile, one with lips closed, the other with an endearing line of gum. As a matter of fact, Lena was hungry. That, and date-wise, had been a dismal couple of months. Love has built its house with less. Want burned in Charlie's lower brain while upstairs he wondered if maybe she wasn't Greek or French. In fact, Helena Rush had been named for an actress of some merit in the Irish National Theatre. Great-great-aunt Helena first crossed the family blood by screwing the fair Norwegian actor who was playing Bassanio to her Portia. Following great-great-aunt Helena, subsequent generations, now in America, included a slave-owning Virginian, an Ohio Episcopalian, and a handful of Jews who forgot they were Jews once they reached California. This all took place on Lena's mother's side. On her father's side, there were the money-fixated, unyielding Germanic rushes, who every few generations produced a dreamer, unable to earn a buck. Lena's father. Nice, but too nice, she wondered, glad that Charlie wasn't pretty, not with that hawkish nose and small English teeth. Age and some sleep would be kind to the face of Charlie Pepper, adding gravitas here, softening there, bettering. Lena could see that map as far as it went. Her gaze shifted to Charlie's capable hands, A sigh of girlish hope escaped her. She'd been holding herself safe, tied up in knots. Every so often she would undo a part, let it down, have a fling. In the beginning, they all wanted to marry her. That would go on for a time, until one or the other would put the fork in. Her friends were all career women pretending not to be looking for husbands while looking for them every night. But Lena never pretended. She'd done away with love. Where to, she asked, taking Charlie's arm. A low current ran through her as they moved across the wide planked floors. Look at this, she thought. I'm completely calm. She'd gone off with a stranger once before, but that had been different. That had been entirely different. She was nowhere near that trouble now. Stop grinning like an ass, Charlie warned himself, smiling anyway, as he led Lena down several flights of stairs. At one point, he let her get a few steps ahead. Her hair was thick and her ears very small, and he had to keep his other hand in his pocket so as not to touch, not to cover her bones, her cheeks, her nose with his mouth. He had a tremendous urge to crush her. Here, he said, as they were outside, nearing the corner. He tucked her close like a package that must be kept out of the rain. We're going here. 
Even after the wedding, they still believed that marriage was a flexible, romantic sort of agreement, which they would shape and polish over time. It was not. Marriage was a stone on which far tougher than the likes of Charlie and Lena had been shaped and polished unto vapor and salt. Theo arrived a few years later, and soon he was a sweet-faced kid who asked too many questions, but that just made him more like his mother and more loved. They took up housekeeping in a, be- in a condo in the back bay of Boston. Charlie joined the surgical faculty at Mass General, leading a push in robotics. Lena was a senior, senior producer for special projects at Boston's famed PBS station, WGBH. She'd produced a winning series on the evolution of the presidency and had won the plum assignment of making a documentary on the global AIDS crisis. Lena took Charlie and Theo on that first trip to Mumbara, Uganda, to a teaching hospital with a small HIV clinic. The surgical unit had just one full-time doctor and an overflowing population of sick and wounded. It lacked an x-ray machine, and the one wheezy generator only intermittently supported the lights and a ventilator. Charlie believed he could help. Soon they were spending their vacations in Mumbara. Charlie brought over some residents from Boston to help the staff. He built systems. Lena, toting Theo, worked with a local woman to start a school. At night, they ate dinner at the Lord's Bar. Grilled goat, chapati, salsa, beer. That first year, they traveled to Uganda twice. They were happy, as singularly happy as they would ever be. Then one night back home in Boston, as Lena and Charlie made love, at the climactic moment, she heard the ripple in the river. Straddling Charlie, locking him with her thighs, she put a cool finger to his heart and asked, What is it? What is what? Charlie truly believed he'd only been shooting the breeze with his best friend Swanson. That's all. Lena nodded encouragingly. She gave him plenty of time. She had looked inside him to the lamplight there. Seeing the lamp, she also spied the secret box he kept beside it, as everyone did, as she had one herself. His heart beat up through her finger. You know, she said. He didn't quite, not in so many words. Having marched straight through med school into his internship and residency, and then on to the daily grind of a high-speed surgical career, Charlie Pepper hit his 40s wanting something more. Something more woke him in the night like a lover calling his name. But he hadn't really put it into words. Smiling knowingly, Lena climbed down from the bed and walked her high ass out of the room. She was never casual with intuitions, and she never liked to waste time. And besides, the lamp and the box were hallowed things not to be fooled with. What the hell just happened? Charlie sat up, pulling the covers discreetly to his waist. He felt stunned, enlivened, and yes, some afraid. Lena was in the kitchen now, banging cabinets, opening the fridge door, his small-boned girl with a bit of a heavy hand. Loving always made her starving. That he knew as well. 
She returned with a plate of chicken, grapes, bread, pickles, cheese, and a six-pack of Guinness. Climbing into bed, she daintily arranged the picnic around her. She tore off a hunk of bread, laid it across her palm, and stacked it with a slice of chicken and a log of cheese. Biting down, Lena groaned with pleasure. Then she fixed him with those grass-green eyes. Once Charlie started talking, it was hard to stop. His thoughts tumbled out fully formed, like neat bricks set in rows. Of course, he he drank a bit, too. We'll talk of this time, he said, as the revolution. He had already convinced Mass General to invest in a million-dollar robot called the Midas. He had made himself the go-to guy training docks up and down the East Coast. This much Lena knew. But the Midas proved to be an Edsel, overly technical, fussy. And through his work in Uganda, Charlie had imagined a more simplified robot that could be used in remote locations. A battlefield, say. A smaller robot that could be wheeled in on a cart and cost a tenth of the price as the Midas. Any surgeon anywhere would want to use it. In a long life together, who says what the key moments are? When love knocks you on the head and shouts, Hey, listen up. This is our chance. Lena understood desire. She understood it in her bones. She ate all the food and drank a beer, then put her plate aside. She'd been listening carefully. And when her mind wandered, she counted the crow's feet around Charlie's eyes, making certain they were the same number as yesterday, and then she listened a little more. They would have to move out west to join Swanson, who had deep roots in the medical device world. San Francisco would be a leap backward to a place she'd run from years ago. She saw the sharp, unhappy faces of her mother and her sisters, and putting them aside, she hugged her ribs and focused on the pleasant cadences of Charlie's voice. She considered the sweet fragrance of San Francisco in March, when the hills of Marin and Oakland were greenest, and the sea air mixed with the pungent, flowering privet. She recalled those tawny afternoons of her childhood as the sun cast its golden veil over the city. But was she ready to go back? From here, Lena's thoughts returned to the shadows. She fretted over housing prices. She hated the thought of leaving the job she loved. She knew it would be hell to get Theo into one of those snotty private schools, but the public schools which she preferred were broken. So instead, she imagined calling Violet, her best friend, whom she missed terribly, to say she was coming home. The picture brightened again. By the time Charlie finished, she had decided they'd keep the piano but sell the car. You okay? he asked, for there were tears in her eyes. Then again, she had a piece of arugula stuck in her tooth. With the tip of his finger, Charlie removed it. He kissed her deeply, holding her face in his capable doctor hands and pledging in so many endearing, silly phrases his undying love. Then he sat back to listen. He knew she would have lots of questions. At first, she said nothing. 
She got out of bed and throwing on his old sweater sat in the one good chair across from him. Her eyes tick-tocked. Finally, she said, we could lose each other. It wasn't a question. She had hefted the largest boulder from the river and flung it on the floor between them. She expected him to examine it with her. We're different, she said. That's fine when it's just us together, but the distance, Charlie. She shook her head. Charlie didn't want to think about them being different. With you, Lean, that's what I'm saying. It's always going to be us. We're talking years, Charlie. You won't do this halfway. I wouldn't want you to. What, do you mean schedules? We'll figure that out. Now. Let's figure it out now. And once again, she pointed to the rock he could not see. Weekends, he ventured. I'll be home on the weekends and, I don't know, three out of five nights during the week. And Uganda? He thought for a long moment. Finally, he hung his head. I'll have to cut that out. Cut it out, she cried. Didn't he understand it was hers, too? Charlie opened his mouth and shut it like a fish. Okay, I'll cut back, whatever it takes. Honestly, babe. His heart was racing. Three years. Let's agree we'll give it three years. I'll build it, then sell it. I don't know. We can do this, Lean. We can be big. How do you know we can be big? My God, I just know. Feeling it, too, she nodded. Her hand went to her heart. She'd been thinking lately it was time they had another child. Charlie Pepper. Come over here and say that. She smiled but stayed put. I said, come over here. Mm, I heard you. Maybe now Charlie thought I should offer her something equally bounteous. Hey, he said, let's make a girl this time. When scared or surprised, her ears moved back like a horse's. What, Pep, then I'd have two to raise on my own? But she was beaming, and Charlie knew he had hit on the very thing. They had no limits. Together they had no limits at all. But they were as ordinary as any two people wanting more. When Lena's boss heard that her radical save-the-world-and-nail-the-bastards producer was pregnant with twins and moving to San Francisco, Kay Higgins let go a world-weary sigh. Why is it, she asked, in a boom economy, it's always the women heading back to the kitchen? Higgins was 55 and a spinster. What besides a lifetime of work did she know? She fixed Lena with a self-justifying smile that was the purview of politicians and maiden aunts. My door's always open, sweetheart. I'm just so disappointed I won't see your star walk through it. Again, Kay sighed, a sigh that had everything to do with her old loneliness. But that part Lena missed. Instead, she heard a warning. I'll get there, she protested. It might take a little more time. It'll be harder. Kids feed off the primary vein. Fine by me. Oh, it'll be fine, Lena. It'll be wonderful. Just different. But Lena wasn't sure she wanted different, if different meant being less. 
What had she been doing all these years if not striving to become someone? She wanted to have her children and still be the mighty star. What's this, Kay? Didn't we agree there should be a special place in hell for women who don't help other women rise? Lena was already on her feet heading for the door. You know, for women who don't let other women choose. Oh, honey, by all means choose, by all means rise. Kay agreed, but there was something new in her voice that sounded to Lena a lot like a door closing. Lena was halfway down the hall when she remembered where she was going, and feeling better, she shouted behind her, Life, Kay, life. I'll stop there. So I can, I can riff a bit here, or I can answer any questions. Yeah? Can you tell us um, the origin of the title? Where, how did it come to you? So three stages of amazement. Um, actually, I had the title a long time ago. I had the title uh, about 30 years ago. Um, I was um, spending a semester in college um, in France. And I had arrived in France thinking I could speak French. <laughs> and the French very quickly um, taught me otherwise. <laughs> a, a, a real process in the first couple weeks of mortification, of, of being laughed at every time I opened my mouth. And um, the program I was with took a field trip to the cathedral in Chartres. How many of you have been there? It's, yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, we walked in, and uh, I heard English being spoken. And so I made a beeline for that group. And they were standing in front of the, the famed stained glass window in the cathedral, and the group had fallen silent. And the guide said, congratulations, ladies and gentlemen. You're displaying the first stage of amazement. And I was completely intrigued and would have stayed forever to hear what else this guy had to say. But at that moment, my, my group was taking off to look at the buttresses on the outside of the cathedral, and I had to go with them. So I never heard what other stages it, what, are there, how many. But it, it, in that way, I think that, that we writers um, play with tidbits and grow them and turn them, and you never know when you're going to use them. I, I really thought a lot about stages of amazement, and I decided that there are three. And in thinking about that... Um, I came to see those moments as the pivotal moments in life, the transformative moments, the very, very best things, falling in love, the birth of a child, um, um, seeing a work of art that moves you in a way that, that changes your life, and also the very worst things, uh, the sudden death of somebody, um, tragedy, phenomenon on, a, on an epic scale. Um, the, the gross misuse of power, um, 
things that, that went once we witnessed them were changed. And I came to see that there were three stages of how we process that, th- those moments. First, in the enormity, we fall silent. And second, something happens in the mind and, and, and we don't believe what we've just witnessed. Disbelief. And then the third thing, it seems to me, is to make, to make it real, to hold on to it, you have to tell someone. So the book is divided into three stages, silence, disbelief, and talk. And, and in my reckoning of, of, of moving these characters, um, I saw each of the, of the many relationships. It's really, it's a love story, but it's a love story of, uh, uh, in as many different forms of love, kinds of love, uh, beginnings and endings of love that, that I could... Um, conjure in one story and and each of the characters is at a critical moment of crisis where that kind of movement is occurring I've stunned you all into silence <laughs> a different kind of yeah um, so I'm, I'm from Boston and now I live in San Francisco and so I was listening to you read I was sort of wondering what those two places are symbolically to you um, into the character and the story. If there's a, you know, Boston sort of embodies this sort of energy and San Francisco will be up at a different time. Or perhaps you're from your area. Um, let me take it a different way. So Charlie Pepper characters come to me uh, in different ways. He came to me through his Boston accent. Now why he came that way um, I can't really say, but but I could I could hear him first. So I had to put him where he grew up. Um, he grew in grew up in the uh, um, he he grew up on the wrong side of Boston, um, and had had climbed had climbed to med school, um, and that kind of hunger really drives him, and the terror of ever. Losing ground really drives Charlie. Um, but I put I set the book out here I, in part because so much of what's happened to me in my life since I came out here. I came out from the East Coast about um, th- over thirty years ago. Um, everything good that's happened in my life has happened out here, and I see San Francisco and the Bay Area as such a place of. Um, both daring and uh, dream making, and also there's a there's just an inherent edginess to living in this earthquake zone, and so I think the possibility for dramatic arcs in San Francisco um, there's there's just a level of risk taking that is part of the water out here. Um, so that's that's it. Just seemed home ground for the book. I think a lot of times in, in writing fiction, we make decisions and we put the logic behind them. But in fact, it's, uh, it's sometimes just a bit of, if you, if you begin a chapter on a Tuesday versus a Thursday, you're in, a different, you're in a different mindset and you go with that and you go as far as you can get um, with it until you come up against inevitable 
difficulty, and then you have to reassess and rejigger constantly. less time. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about narrative. Um, my husband, Tom Jenks, and I began narrative in uh, narrative magazine in, in 2003 with the idea that, uh, you know, it was very early in, in the world of the internet. Um, it was before really any magazines were online. And it seemed to us that if writers didn't get on board um, the digital revolution and, and who really understood how big it was going to be back then, um, they were going to be increasing, increasingly marginalized. So we began it um, just with six, six stories, uh, no money. Um, there was a piece um, by Joyce Carol Oates and Tobias Wolf and Jane Smiley, and then three new uh, emerging writers who were just really, really smart and talented. And we just we launched it out of, you know, out of our house. Uh, worked for a long time, just the two of us. Then there was a third person. And fast forward to today, um, we published 400 writers a year. Um, we have a staff of about 120 people all over the world. Amazing, dedicated, um, credible folks, um, 90 of whom are volunteers. And um, the commitment we still have is to give all of the contents of the magazine free so there's no socioeconomic barrier um, to getting really good stuff. Um, but in our commitment to writers, um, we, pay, we pay for our contents. You can't say you're in support of writers, I don't think, and find a way to pay them. Um, and the, the third aspect is to really mentor new writers. A third of, of, the, of the writing we publish is from emerging authors. So poetry, fiction, nonfiction, essays, graphic novels, cartoons, and we keep sort of expanding the universe. So that's a really long-winded way of saying um, that it's, it's very time-consuming. Uh, and I spent a lot of time reading manuscripts and actually begging and borrowing money. We're a nonprofit of just trying to keep the, the wheels running. Uh, we live in a moment right now where literature is really imperiled. Um, you know, the NEA has been slashed. Um, publishing is in chaos. At the same time, uh, all over the world, the contents of narrative are being taught in schools. And we have a free app on iPad and iPhone. And in the last six months, let me just, I'll take six months, probably 80 to 100,000 stories have been downloaded off our app. So, you know, you hear a lot in the world about how nobody's reading anymore. In fact, people really are reading. And we're, um, the desire to be told a good story, I think, is universal. And it's, it's, a, great, it's a great way to bridge cultures. Um, so it's always, every day is that, um, that tension between my own work and, and working on the magazine. I haven't figured it out. 
Yeah. The, the long gap between the first novel and the second novel is very reassuring to me. I was wondering how you whether there was more well, it was really hard um, to, to take such a long time, but actually there's a story behind that story. I, when I first wrote Three Stages of Amazement, uh, I had set it in the dot-com boom and bust. And I finished the book in September of 2008. And if ever there was a person with bad timing, right? I mean, the sky was falling, and in publishing, everything had gone, come to a crashing halt. Uh, and I thought, wow, I've, I've spent a decade working on this book, and most of the time, always working full-time, and I have three young kids, and um, most of it had been written between the hours of 9 o'clock at night and 2 in the morning. And I finally finished, and... I thought, okay, I've waited this long. I'm going to hang on for a couple more months before I send it out. I'll wait till November. And, of course, <laughs> November came and went, and things were just as bad. So I thought, okay, January. January, somehow we're going to be out of this crisis. I mean, really, it was such a short time ago, but really we didn't know. We didn't know that it was going to be an absolute... Uh, shift in everything everything we've known up until now. So January came and I woke up one night in the middle of the night and I realized that this is the moment, this is the pivotal moment for, for our lives um, and that the book need, needed to be cast in, in this crisis. So I, I curled into a fetal position, <laughs> had a good cry, and then I got to work, and I, I started write, rewriting the book in January of 2009, and that's where it's set, and I wrote all year until December of 2009, and that's when the book ends, and um, then I sent it off to my agent, and, and um, so it was a long gap, and it was, it was a bumpy road. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting to me that you wrote it during the period in which it's set, and um, I wonder if you feel that it absorbed more emotion out of the times for that reason that it was. Yeah. To- yeah, things were unfolding, and I used I used them as you know uh, I had the bones of the book for sure, and uh, many of the scenes, but in recasting it, I, re- I rewrote and re-, re many things changed, and certainly uh, the news of the day informed the story. Yeah? Have you ever uh, been tempted to uh, trace the docent that charged to uh, hear what the other stages of the No. <laughs> Are you tempted? I am. That's what I want to know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he ha- I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how much of that has turned over in my mind to be something else. Um, I'm not even sure if what he said was, you know, you're you're all in amazement. You're all in silence. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much left was left in his bag. I mean, I've I've imagined it so many times, and I've heard him so many times that I, but I don't quite trust myself. At this point, I don't want to know. 
Yeah. Do you mind speaking a little bit about Christ the Euphrates? I'd be glad to. Any anything you want me to address? Well, how much of it is biographical, and how much of it, you know, what liberties did you take in the story? So my first book, Rise the Euphrates, uh, was about three generations. As excuse me, as Vikram said, it was three generations of women in an Armenian American family. It's not my family story. Um, Again, the character of the grandmother, Kassard, uh, actually came to me at a time when I, I came down with a horrible flu and had a very high fever. And I started to hear this woman's voice. I am Armenian. I'm half Armenian and half Swedish. Uh, it's my father's side that's the Armenian side. And... I had never been that close to those roots. And she came to me. And it was, for me, a process of really discovering that world. And through that world, those characters came to me. Um, it It was a really... I spent a lot of time in the Library of Congress looking at the original telegrams from the genocide. And, and hearing stories, I, I learned to speak Armenian just so I could hear the cadence in my vo- in my ear. I spoke it when I was very little. My grandmother uh, spoke it, um, but no, it's it's a made up story. But I, I think every book comes comes from the, um, a certain urgency that the author has. Well, this is my mother's story. I'm half Armenian. The other half is Assyrian. And um, there's a lot of similarities. In 1915, they were northwestern Iran, small villages. Mm-hmm. They lived, <clears throat> met the British who lived in refugee camps in Bakuba in Iraq, which is the Tigris. <laughs> right. Whereas um, the grandmother goes into the, or, or her mother entered the Euphrates. The, of course, goes up much higher. Right. There are so many of those stories of survival in those days. Um, for me, the question behind that book was what gets passed on from generation to generation. The unfinished work of one generation becomes something inherited in the next generation. That was interesting to me, particularly between mothers and daughters. But you know, there's been so much, um, so much denying of that 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 part of history. Um, that's its own unending story. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.